Hello, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Rehawk. I'm your co-host, Jack Snefflin. And joining us, we have a special guest lecturer. See, framing it like that makes me feel like I'm just going to be the kind of, like, supply teacher that you get for, like, one lesson and is, like, really easily distracted so you don't actually learn anything and it strays vastly off the topic of what is supposed to be happening, which is great when you're in school and you don't want to do maths, but for a podcast like this with an actual, like, mission statement... That might that might not be as good. Oh no no, we're here to liven up the experience. We need we need more uh more of that randomized content, like in the Mac Elroys. <laughs> I mean I could stand on my table, but it might make recording difficult. <laughs> that was a reference to the previous episode, which I've listened to. To a film I've never seen. I also don't think you've introduced yourself. Oh Maya. sorry, yeah, I I'm Maya. I, I agreed to do this because I'm a big fan of the show. It's such an honor. <laughs> Also, you know things about Sherlock Holmes. To borrow a phrase that I heard on a podcast once, I am a fan, but not expert. Nice. Gonna make a tally of every time we reference uh, my other podcast. Speaking of your other podcast, we should probably talk about what films we'll be discussing this week. Yes. This week, we're talking about Young Sherlock Holmes from 1985 and She's the Man from 2006. Young Sherlock Holmes. A teenage John Watson transfers to Brompton Academy in the heart of London. There he meets a young Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock decides to take Watson under his wing and show him around the school eventually introducing him to the former headmaster and Holmes's mentor, Rupert Waxflatter, and his niece, Elizabeth. Elsewhere in the city, a number of suspicious deaths have occurred, apparent self-defenestration, and a carriage accident, and have grabbed Holmes' attention as he suspects foul play. Holmes pesters the local policeman, Lestrade, but to no avail. Unfortunately for the young detective, he's soon framed for cheating by a school rival and expels. Before he leaves campus, Professor Waxflatter stabs himself becoming the latest victim in a string of apparent suicides. Sherlock decides to stay and solve the mystery to bring justice to Elizabeth and her late uncle and recruits Watson to help. The investigation leads them to a cult of Osiris worship- worshippers called the Rametep, who use blowpipes and darts that induce nightmarish hallucinations to cause death. Eventually, the young sleuths find a connection between the three victims and a potential fourth, Chester Cragwich. They confront Cragwich and learn of the group's activities in Egypt and death threats sent to them by a local boy named Etar. No longer useful to the plot, Cragwitch is shot by a dart and attacks Holmes, but Lestrade intervenes, now believing the lad after being exposed to a dart himself. Returning to the school, Holmes realizes that Etar is his fencing coach, Professor Wraith. They arrive to find Elizabeth kidnapped and seek out the cult to rescue her. The two boys are able to incapacitate most of the cult and set fire to the pyramid sanctum, but Wraith escapes with Elizabeth. Watson sabotages his getaway carriage and the boys rescue Elizabeth but Wraith confronts them and shoots at Holmes. Elizabeth jumps in the way to save him, but is mortally wounded. Wraith and Holmes fight on the frozen river Thames, and Sherlock bests his former teacher. Wraith sinks below the ice, and Holmes returns to Elizabeth in her final moments. In the following days, Holmes decides to leave Brompton, as there are too many painful memories there. Holmes and Watson bid each other farewell. In a post-credit sequence, Wraith checks into an alpine lodge under the name Moriarty. We were kind of hoping that Haith would turn out to be Moriarty, and when he wasn't, we were like, oh, okay. And then he was, and we were like, oh, okay. The old Moriarty bait-and-switch. I remember, like, I, w- I first watched this movie when I was a kid, because I think they used to put it on at Christmas, because it's set around Christmas, and it's snow, it's snowy. Sure. Um, and, like, so I, the first time I watched it as a kid, and I was, you know... So I watched the whole film and then I watched the credits because I still think, you know, there's a sleigh in some snow. Things are happening. You know, you see a, a man checking into a hotel. You're like, you only see him from the back and he signs the guest book and he signs it Moriarty. And to me, I was I was thinking, oh, they're, they're setting this up for a sequel. 
they would. Young Sherlock Holmes to The Mummy Returns. <laughs> um, but yeah, I do oh. remember seeing it for the first time as a kid, and that moment, right at the very, like the stinger at the end, the post-credit scene, the, probably the first one I ever saw. <laughs> uh, and he signs in, and he, he signs as Moriarty, and then it looks up, and it's Wraith. That was. I think that might have been the first time I said a cuss word out loud. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I was, but like. I was blown away because I was like, you know, and I do, I, like, I remember talking to my family. It's like, but they showed he'd like, he died. He went in the water. He died. And they were like, well, he obviously <laughs> survived. And I'm like, how? And they're like, and they were just like, shut up, drink your milk. It's hard for me to not approach any piece of Sherlock Holmes media from anything other than a vantage point of knowing stuff about Sherlock Holmes. But I really did like whenever like Holmes and Moriarty have a face off to the death, it always involves water. Like, you know. <laughs> There's an, sure. uh, you know, there's like an elemental component, you know, to the sense of like nemesis and stuff. There's lots of like little sort of Sherlock Holmesy flourishes. That's obviously, it's a writer show in the handiwork. Even when it gets kind of bonkers, you can tell that the creators really either grew up with the books or like had a lot of love for them. The thing that I like watching it now is that there's a disclaimer at the beginning and at the end. Oh, two. There's yeah. two. They bookended it with disclaimers. The don't add us nerds. Yeah. Which to me seems makes it seem less affectionate and more like they've been threatened. You just like imagine the editor like putting the film strips together and they look over and like Dame Jean Conan Doyle is standing in the corner with a length of lead pipe just bouncing it on her hand. <laughs> like the Sherlock Holmes fandom is one of the oldest fandoms in existence. <laughs> I can see why they were very nervous about the fan reaction. And this is like pre-Twitter. There's no social media in 1985. They were scared of angry letters. (laughs) (laughs) All the death threats coming over the facts. The way this veers off of the fact that Chris Columbus is involved, who also wrote The Goonies, which came out the same year. The only choice I have is to believe that at some point his writing projects got mixed up. I mean, it does feel very Goonies-ish. It does also feel very, like, Harry Potter and Sorcerer's Stony. I get what, like, what kind of headspace he writes in. Yeah, let's go ahead and get into the movie proper. Um, So we actually don't start off with Holmes. We start off with, um... Um, Bobster? Yeah, Bobster. Which isn't a surname I've ever come across in anything. It sounds like the... It sounds like the (laughs) thing your uncle calls you if your name's Robert. I mean, we also have... Cragwitch and Wax Oh, the Dickensian names. There's a bit where Sherlock is like, tell him his name before he can, before he like goes <laughs> mad and Watson is trying but can't remember the guy's name because it's too silly. Your name is Craggy Quitch. Your name, your name is... Your name is... What's his name? Cragwitch. Did you know, by the way, that you could stop someone hallucinating by yelling their own name at them like a magic spell? We're following Bobster. He gets hit with one of the darts and you know, like, okay, is he gonna drop dead any minute? And he sits down to dinner and he gets this goose and then it comes to life. I believe it's a game cock. <laughs> ah, good, the game is a cock. <laughs> it comes to life in a special effects that at first I thought Full Moon Productions produced this. The effects are wild and diverse. I want you to like this this scene at the beginning with the game cock where it, like it sprouts a head that looks like a skexis and starts attacking him. I want you to imagine watching that as, like, a five-year-old. That's, like, in terms of, like, time to traumatization of audience, like, for me, it's up, it's up, it's up there with the beginning of Ghostbusters, with the ghost in the library, and he goes, Bwah, uh, which also shit me up as a kid. I'm struggling to remember any other film that begins with a man being attacked by his dinner. There's a lot of 
weird, interesting effects going on. This is actually the first film to use uh, CGI in it. The uh, Stained Glass Night, actually produced by Pixar while they were still under uh, Lucasfilm. Yeah, it looks brilliant, by the way. It looks like a bad guy in a PlayStation 1 era Castlevania game. Oh yeah, but it, it totally fits. Like, it doesn't look out of place. It's It has aged surprisingly well. The, the effects for the hallucinations really work because they're obviously not trying to be realistic. Mm-hmm. Also, when you mentioned the fact that Chris Columbus also wrote The Goonies and it feels like these two movies are a kind of, you know, kind of dovetailed together. I just want to point out he also wrote Gremlins and there are Gremlins in this movie. Yep. This is the Chris Columbus cinema. I'm glad we're never supposed to think the effects are real. We're not trying to figure out what's going on with them. We give it, this is like a hallucinogenic poison or whatever and it's the characters who we can watch react to it which is easier than being like, Wait, are they doing an actual supernatural thing in a Sherlock Holmes story? Because they are hallucinations, they don't have to be, like, wonderfully true to life. Because they're, like, in- they're supposed to be, like, intentionally disoriented. I think Sherlock's is the most interesting. His dad is attacking him. Yeah! And there's some dialogue in there that makes it seem like Sherlock exposed his dad's affair to his mother? You know, when you sort of imagine what kind of child Sherlock Holmes was... He probably was the sort of child who was into everything and had very little perception of consequences. Honestly, that's kind of my headcanon for any given Sherlock. <laughs> is it like, this happened, or some variant of this, whatever, like, the context or situation. I'd be really interested to see, like, Sherlock's first case is exposing his father's affair. <laughs> we start off with those murders. Then we get into, like, Watson and Holmes proper. And all of the schoolboy antics, I think, totally fit within what I would expect from a young Sherlock Holmes film. And the initial investigation into the murders also. As soon as you start incorporating all of the Osiris cult, things, again, start to veer more towards Goonies or Indiana Jones, since Spielberg is involved yeah, in this. It, it basically is almost a shot-for-shot remake of Temple of Doom at time, where the characters yes. are looking out over a cult as some cultish music plays, and they do bad cult things to people. Mm-hmm. And they have to save the uh, blonde love yeah. interest. And it's also a prequel. Uh, yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't know what to do with this information. I've uncovered a conspiracy. Apparently some version of this film were released as uh, Young Sherlock Holmes and the Pyramid of Fear. And I can't remember if it was you or Mike who called it uh, the Pyramid. <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely Mike. <laughs> the whole cult thing I found a bit, I, you know, it, it does come slightly out of nowhere. And there's a line at the end, because uh, a voiceover... Holmes went on to explain that Wraith spent years plotting his revenge. And then, of course, it took time to build a wooden replica of the pyramid. Mrs. Dribb was the Ramatep's chief assassin. But more importantly, she was Wraith's younger sister. <laughs> they clearly went, you know, audiences are thick. Spell it out for them. Okay, it's not even that audiences are thick <laughs> here. They just, at a certain point, there's no more mystery solving. It's just like... How does this all connect? The maid is his sister? (laughs) What? They did get Sir Michael Horden to voice the Elder Watson, and I could quite happily listen to Michael Horden's voice all the time, and have done on many occasions, because he was Gandalf in the BBC radio Lord of the Rings, and Mm, narrated the Paddington Bear TV show that I liked when I was a kid. (laughs) So... Yeah, I don't think the acting on the narration is bad. I just think... 
using it to fix the problems with the story is bad. There are, there are a few times where the narration is just Michael Horden going, and then Holmes told me this, which, like, you could have had the characters do that. Maybe it was, like, a runtime thing, which, to be fair, does happen a lot in Sherlock Holmes stories, where, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of Sherlock Holmes stories aren't even, like, the adventure. It's, uh, like, debriefing. Holmes will just go off and then come back and be like, I solved it, Watson, here's how it happened, and Watson will just write it down. It wasn't, like, wildly outside of the, the remit of Sherlock Holmes. It just doesn't make for a good movie. <clears throat> I do have a theory, though. Storytelling Watson now, 40 years later, is, like, hyping it up a bit because at the time he was a scary kid, so everything seemed bigger. Mm. In reality, it was, like, just seven dudes in a living room or whatever. <laughs> yeah, if the cult was more like the Golden Dawn, like, which would fit perfectly with it, Victorian England, I'd be more okay with it. But this is, like, full-on Temple of Doom. I do like the idea of, of the Ramatep cult being, like, five blokes in a room over a pub. This, this is the thing that got me. It mentions at the end that, like, the cult was, you know, they filled out the ranks with a lot of the, sort of, the poor and the homeless. Which, you know, I understand to a degree. They are they are the kind of people who'll slip through the cracks. But it's like, you're looking at the setup they've got. It's like, no, some of these people are, you know, peers. It's sort of the Batman problem where you could easily fix homelessness, but instead you decided to do very elaborate costumes and interior decorating instead of actually just giving people homes. Even to this day, it is incredibly funny to see Anthony Higgins, who plays um, Wraith slash Atar slash Moriarty, in, you know, a full Hollywood imagining of an Anubis priest garb while also wearing a starched Victorian collar. <laughs> an incredibly good look. The actors are doing an okay job in this. Yeah, I honestly don't have any problems with the acting, with the exception of how overwrought Wraith's death scene is. <laughs> it's in the traditions of Victorian melodrama. Um, Anthony Higgins, who played uh, Wraith, who we find out at the end is Moriarty, he also played Sherlock Holmes in uh, a made-for-TV movie that was like a backdoor pilot called 1994 Baker Street Sherlock Holmes Returns which is about Sherlock Holmes cryogenically freezing himself and being unfrozen in 1993 in San Francisco amazing and as far as I'm aware that makes him one of only two actors who have played both Holmes and Moriarty on film uh, the other being Richard Roxburgh who played Holmes in a Hand of the Baskervilles TV movie for the BBC and was also Moriarty in The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen which you've talked about on this show which means that I can mention <laughs> everything is connected like Wax Splatter played Watson at some point mm. yes. and both David Burke and Edward Hardwick guested on that and also I found out um, in, in researching for this that in 1982 Granada Television made a young Sherlock Holmes miniseries and the guy who played Sherlock Holmes in that was Guy Henry who you might have seen in he's in this um, film series it's a bit niche um, I've got the name written down Star Wars he plays um, Grand Moff Tarkin in Rogue One who was played by Peter Cushing who played Sherlock Holmes opposite Nigel Stock who played Wax Flatter in this movie <laughs> Uh, hang on, I need scissors. I'm running out. Of, I'm running out of string for the conspiracy board. <laughs> I do want to talk about uh, the actor who is playing the young Sherlock Holmes. He has the very prominent physicality that a lot of Holmes actors have. It's difficult to find a like a young actor who has that like prominent nose and facial features, and. I just want to commend the casting director. He's also like a foot taller than everybody else around him, including the adults. Watson is fine. They kind of just grabbed a chubby British boy, mm-hmm. which works. Alan Cox, who plays Watson in this, he's like the proto Harry Potter. Oh, yeah. He really is. Harry Potter playing Ron Weasley. Wow. With a little bit of Neville thrown in. Just this amalgam of magic boys. Holmes has a bet with the proto Malfoy in this film. Yes. He's called Dudley. <laughs> Dudley. 
Um, he was it's all very confusing. He's the one, <laughs> he's, uh, he's actually the one who gets Holmes expelled. Um, so mm-hmm. he's kind of you know the nemesis on the school side of things until it's revealed that yeah, he... Moriarty is actually also the nemesis on the school side of things. He, he gives Holmes like sixty minutes to find it, and he's like running around on the roofs and stuff, and like the teachers are all watching him. And, you know, some of them are tut-tutting and, you know, Wraith, who's, like, his favourite teacher because he's the fencing master and he's, like, quite chummy with him. Um, like, him and I think it's I, I think it's the headmaster or the chemistry teacher or something, they have a bet about mm. whether Holmes will find the trophy. And they, they bet a guinea, which is 21 shillings, which is one pound and one shilling. In today's money, that's, like, $85. <laughs> Damn! That's, like, a utility bill. Yeah. I mean, it totally works in the film. It's just, it's like, like this is the first time I watched it as an adult when I knew what a guinea was, and I'm like, it's a lot of money. <laughs> um, but also, um, that's it. Um, it. It turns out that he's hidden. Uh, the the baddie boy has hidden the trophy in a vase, and Holmes picks it up. And rather than just like fishing his hand inside or like turning it upside down, he goes to, he raises it up. And again, one of the schoolmasters is like, Holmes, what are you doing? That's an antique. And Holmes just like looks at him like a cat that's about to push a glass of water off a table, even though you've just even though you've just been like, ah, no, don't. But the cat still like locks eyes and it's like, no gods, no masters, and still does it. <laughs> you know, and he just like smashes it on the floor and there's the trophy. And all I could think of was Jeremy Brett in the naval treaty saying, it's like, ah, uh, Watson will tell you I never can resist a flair for the dramatic. And it's like, clearly this has been a long chain of events in his life that for which this has been true. There is like lots of Sherlock Holmes nerd stuff. Like um, when he first meets Watson, he does the Sherlock scan and he mm-hmm. guesses that Watson's name is James based on the fact that it says J Watson on his mattress, which is, mm-hmm. uh, I, which I think is meant to be a reference to the fact that over the course of the stories, Watson's first name is given as both John and James. Because Arthur Conan Doyle didn't mm-hmm. give a shit and he wanted to stop writing Sherlock Holmes. He couldn't be bothered. <laughs> I think one of my like biggest problems is... So Elizabeth gets shot at the uh, climax of the film. A, it's bad because we're fridging a woman who unfortunately didn't have a whole lot of relevance to the plot anyway. Also, John Watson wants to be a doctor. He's just sitting there watching her die in his arms, not doing any doctory things. <laughs> I really wish that there was like some attempt to like stall like stall the bleeding or help Elizabeth in any way shape or form because it would have allowed Watson to like do something. There is one minor thing I want to talk about. It debunks the notion that anything supernatural is happening. But Wraith appears to have a magic ring. He hypnotizes Elizabeth by shining a light in her eyes. Not even sort of like you are feeling very sleepy kind of thing. It's just he puts her in like a trance-like state just by shining a light from his ring on her eyes. So the thing I want to ask is, does that make him a ring wraith? God damn it. A, I hate that. You can't see it, but I'm dabbing. B, I kind of just chalk that up to bullshit Victorian mesmerism. (laughs) The thing that I just wonder now is, like, you you clearly have the ability to, like, chemically induce various mental states. Have you heard about this incredible potion that can render a person unconscious? It's called chloroform. (laughs) Maybe she has to, like, be awake for being mummified, which is horrifying. Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) Speaking of horrific death... (laughs) Um, so Sherlock and Watson conspire to bring the pyramid down to save Elizabeth, and in doing so, kill, like, dozens of people, many of whom are, are we've been told, are, like, the homeless and lost of London, just crushed in a burning pyramid. They did conspire to kill a number of young girls. Like, they literally stood back and watched them get, like, boiling wax poured on them. 
couple other, like, honestly minor things in comparison to a lot of the structural problems of the film. Uh, there's a little bit of fat shaming of Watson. Like, he's not even fat. That's, that's the thing. Yeah, he's just very mildly, like, rounder than Sherlock Holmes, who is three sticks tied together. Yeah, he's, he's like a hat stand at a wig. Watson just hasn't worked off his baby fat yet. He hasn't had his growth spurt. Yeah, I've long amused myself by imagining that when they, like, meet again as adults, Watson is both taller than Holmes and also, like, yoked. <laughs> from being in the army. <laughs> uh, that's actually a thing I wanted to, to talk about. I, I do, other than the fat shaming, I do like what they do like with Watson's character. Very early on in the film, Holmes poses him a riddle. It's a riddle like... You're seated in a room with an old... Suddenly, a bear walks by the window. What colour is the bear? The first answer Watson gives is... The bear is red. <laughs> Why on earth would the bear be red? The southern sun is very hot. The bear would be terribly burnt. <laughs> Yes, that answer's wrong, but that's also a storyteller's answer. Adding elements and empathy. And there's a scene at dinner where all the boys are talking about what they want to be when they leave school. And Dudley says he wants to be in the army, and another boy says he wants to be an author. And I think it's interesting that those are both two professions that Watson will enter in addition to medicine. Oh shit, I didn't think of that. I did, because I'm a wretched nerd. One other minor quibble I have with the film. To get some information, Sherlock and Watson go to a Middle Eastern tavern. And the transition cut we get there is just a close-up on a belly dancer's bare midriff. That's what's known in British media as something for the dads. <laughs> it's why Doctor Who companions often wore miniskirts in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Yeah, it's it. I don't know. That I mean, that scene is kind of where they go to the tavern. It's a little bit hard to watch because they don't really learn. All they really learn is the name Ramatep, which is the name of the cult, and that yep. they are feared. But then it's also kind of oh no, this gang of ethnics are threatening the white boys. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Not a great look, is it? It's not great. No. Yeah, we could have completely done without that yeah. scene. Uh, well, speaking of silly mustaches, let's talk about She's the Man. She's the Man from 2006 is based on an r slash relationship post from 1623. <laughs> uh, okay. When Cornwall High cuts their girls' soccer team and star player Viola's shitty boyfriend does nothing to help, she does the only logical thing. Go to the rival school, Illyria, disguises her twin, Sebastian, while his band is secretly in London so she can join their soccer team. Sebastian's best man impression is doing a southern accent badly, so Viola's friends from Cornwall run a grip that makes him look like a stud. Sebastian's hot roommate, Duke, goes to him for dating advice, which leads to that wonderful scene where... Viola is pretending to be Sebastian, pretending to be Olivia, uh, Duke's crush, and uh, having Duke talk to her, uh, talk to her as if he was. It's a whole thing. It's a mess. Sebastian starts falling for Duke, while uh, Olivia starts falling for Sebastian, and also Duke starts falling for the real Viola. Uh, you were with me so far. Good. <laughs> to make Sebastian jealous, Olivia asks out Duke, and Viola has a conversation about how she should be honest with people. Olivia takes us the wrong way and kisses Sebastian, witnessed by Duke, who feels betrayed by his roommate. Bad news, the big game is tomorrow. Several antagonists storm the field to reveal that Sebastian is really Viola, but then he reveals that Sebastian is actually Sebastian. Sebastian had returned from London and was mistaken for, well, Sebastian, by Olivia, who kissed him. Then, then he just started playing on the field, like, eh, sure, why not? Uh, but unfortunately, it means they're not losing. Viola swaps with Sebastian at halftime, confesses her love for, and her girl status to Duke. And then they win the game. Everyone gets married. Or rather, because this is a high school AU, everyone presents themselves with a debutante ball. 
It's like an entire season of Riverdale in two hours. <laughs> Where do we want to start? <laughs> well, I've, in my notes it says, the movie opens on a beach and there the meaningful parallels with Twelfth Night end. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, it's, they also open on a beach if there. You, yeah. If you mm. thought I was insufferable during the Sherlock Holmes portion of this podcast, you have seen nothing. <laughs> Twelfth Night is my favourite Shakespeare play. It's one of it's the only Shakespeare play I've been in, uh, and I got to play my favourite character. I I have opinions. Who's your favourite character? Feste, the Jester. Of course. Who was done notorious wrong in this film by being combined with the character of Malvolio, who's barely in it and plays virtually no no part is called Malcolm Festies. When, when that happened, without any electrical impulses from my brain, the muscles in my face just mimicked like Judge Dredd. But it was just this... <laughs> it was like, oh. I don't want to get like sort of too Twelfth Night fan creature about this, even though I definitely will. But this, to me, is a bad adaptation of Twelfth Night, which isn't even a way that's, you know, you can't really meaningfully look at it that way because it's not trying to be. It's just using the names. And the reason I think it's a bad adaptation is if you took out the Shakespearean names and showed it to someone, and even showed it to someone like me, whose favourite play is Twelfth Night, their first impulse would not be to go, oh, it's Twelfth Night. I appreciate that they took the character Orsina from the play, who's a duke, and made his name Duke Orsina. Like, (laughs) trying really hard there. Yeah, who is played by Channing Tatum (laughs) and spends half the movie without a shirt on. That's a good use of your Channing Tatum, to be fair. <laughs> That's why this is a sports movie. It's weird because it, it it doesn't know if it's a sport movie or a teen comedy, and then you know there there are movies that are both. But you know, I, I you know you did sports movies on on this very show. Yeah, this was almost our soccer movie. Yeah, we have Bendit like Beckham, the second most homoerotic <laughs> soccer movie. I saw Jackson um, wondering how to summarize. She's the man on Twitter. And did and I think what you hit on was Twelfth Night Cross with Bendit like Beckham. Why merely tarnish the name of one timeless piece of art? <laughs> <laughs> Joining Seatates is Amanda Bynes, who's having a lot of fun. Yes, this is kind of like peak Amanda Bynes. She kind of faded into obscurity after that, and I know she had some struggles with bipolar. I know she said that she's the man made her depressed when she watched it because she didn't like how she looked as a boy. Oh, and yeah, and it's like. I didn't either. That you know, I get it. Um, In her very bad wig. Yeah, yeah. That that hair was not flattering. The way that she expresses being male is to do this weird voice. I skipped a couple grades. <laughs> do you know when a soccer tryout start? <laughs> Noon. You play? Absolutely. Center forward. You know, bro. The only way I can really think of to describe her quote unquote man voice is Amish surf rapper. <laughs> I, I challenge wow. to come up with a better description of that voice she's doing. <laughs> I cannot do that. I'm very bad about secondhand embarrassment. I spent about 40% of this movie's like first half just with my face in a shirt trying to like escape it. Yeah. And whenever I noticed, I would pause the film until they know we're no longer doing that. There were times I just had to get up and walk around the house a bit. <laughs> I, I, I showed Jackson, there's a bit in my notes that just says, was this written by aliens? The only person in this movie that reads as convincing to me is Vinnie Jones, and that's literally because he's just playing an awful British PE teacher, of you know, which I have experience with. I have no experience of American schools, so maybe... Oh no, like, everyone is dialed up to 11 here. Yeah. Honestly, besides the PE teacher, probably the most believable character is Sebastian. Yeah, he's like... He's, like, alarmingly laid back because 
he just turns <laughs> up and they're like you're on the soccer team and he's like all right yeah sure it's like yeah. you've been to a school you presumably know how this works how <laughs> you know they don't just look at a random like on the on the day of the big game against the rival school they don't just look at a random kid who just got there and go i like your moxie kid put on the shirt that has your name on it i mean <laughs> this isn't rudy sebastian in 12th night is like for me that's one of the best examples of them transferring traits from a character in the play to this film because sebastian turns up in illyria in the play and meets olivia who's fallen in love with cesario who is viola in disguise and she's like i love you let's get married and he's like yeah okay <laughs> sure lady i just met which you know so i think they, they they were true to his character in a way that they weren't really the only other thing i could think of is viola's stylist friend paul his name is paul antonio mm. and he's like in the film he's coded as gay and in the play antonio is not even coded as gay he is just very gay congratulations movie during the everybody's getting married at the end scene he's like sitting next to a guy who's dressed similarly which is about as uh, about as much as we get in 2019 in films like that's andrew he's been in the whole film you've seen him many times he's high he's had lines in this film and even i knowing that i'm like was it though was it the same guy and he like tucks a handkerchief in his top pocket and i'm like handkerchief what's that what's going on there what's that mean movie Wait, what, what color was the handkerchief that'll tell us a lot <laughs> Oh dear. <laughs> For some reason I've just got a note that says gender makes me tired, which is true, but <laughs> and I can understand why this movie might have provoked me to write that, but I have no memory of doing it. The gender is definitely weird in this film. Like there are parts where Bynes is acting more mannish as Viola than she is as Sebastian. As the film goes on, the line between Viola and Viola pretending to be Sebastian just gets more and more blurry. Sort of blurred Bynes. I hate you. <laughs> I'm trying to bore a coal in your skull with my eyes. Um, the film is definitely trying to explore like concepts of like gender and toxic masculinity, and like, there's like people having conversations about how we should and shouldn't treat men and women, which I get, but I feel like they didn't really have a lot of nuance for that, and I kind of wish they like tried less hard. Yeah, because like the brief moments of competence they show just make you long for a movie where they were able to sustain that level of competence there's a, a bit that made me laugh towards the end where um, so sebastian's very subtle way of showing that he's sebastian is to just drop his trousers and everybody goes oh not bad the principal like describes him as having shown off his willis and doodleberry he's probably halfway to china by now he showed his willis and doodleberry <laughs> i love david cross especially in this film oh. Uh, uh, Monique, who is Sebastian's ex-girlfriend, is being flirted with by Toby, who's the guy who was in Harper's Island. And she's like, Girls with asses like mine, do not talk to boys with faces like yours. She had that burn ready to go, and I feel like she's just been waiting for that moment to use it, and I respect that. She's had that conversation in the shower many times. That sounds right for her. Can I, can I talk about my favorite character in the film? My favorite character is Eunice. I'm fully rooting for her. Like, I want to move about her because she's, she's a freak. In the best way. <laughs> she's the puck of this movie. Because she seems, like, of the fae, you know. And she's the butt of so many, like, horrible jokes. Because, like, you know, she has, like, orthodontic stuff. And it's like, oh, no, boys have to be around her and stuff. And eventually, one of um, Duke Orsino's boys... I want to say it was Toby, but it was the one that 
was the other one from the one that Jackson said was Toby. So from now on, they're both called Toby. This was the Toby. <laughs> this was the Toby played by the guy who was the Red Ranger in Power Rangers SPD. It like hurt for me to watch this film initially because he was being a horrible bro, and. I love his character in Power Rangers. And I was like, no, you're a sweet boy. Don't be nasty. But over the course of the film, he becomes, like, woke, I guess. And, you know, doesn't judge women by appearances. Because he get he gets it on with Eunice. And I'm like, yeah, good for you, Eunice. I think it's less that he gets more woke and stops judging Eunice. It's more he stops caring what his friends think about his choice in what he finds attractive in women. And just goes for it. it as part of its sort of, sort of larger men are sheep melange mm -hmm. the only reason that people begin to talk about maybe Eunice is attractive because she goes on a date with Sebastian thanks to it's Viola as Sebastian using her <laughs> friends to make quote-unquote Sebastian seem like he is a player <laughs> um, they respect him more for that and then start to respect Eunice more for that because they see her on a date with him. It's all very weird, but I'm glad that she got to, like, have love and affection with, like, this guy who, you know, he's, he seems fine. He doesn't seem like the worst person. I mean, it doesn't seem weird to me, but I'm also, like, steeped in this mid-2000s teen movie culture. And, like, oh, yeah, like this is just par for the course. I knew exactly what I was getting going into this movie. That's true. This is your genre. I wouldn't say this is my genre. I'm just familiar with it. <laughs> sure. Alex just immediately like, don't put that evil on me. Um, <laughs> exactly. I've I've, uh, I've never really watched like films from this genre, so you see like you know people on like Tumblr floating the idea of like a sitcom that's two aliens who are roommates, but each one of them thinks the other is a human. <laughs> that's how I describe a lot of the interactions between characters in this film is two aliens from two different planets both trying to pretend to be human. In all fairness, no one in real life speaks in, in iambic pentameter either, so it, really, they're just translating um, Shakespeare's style for a modern audience. See, now I, want a version of, now, now I want a version of this that's a rap musical. Although, talking of, speaking of musical stuff, did you know in 2009 <laughs> this got a Bollywood remake? What? It's a Bollywood remake of She's the Man where they changed the sport to cricket. I don't know. I just found that out. And so now it's, I it's watch not it. another adaptation of Twelfth Night. It's specifically an adap adaptation specifically of She's the Man. Specifically She's the Man. Wow. That sounds great. Yeah. Let's talk about the fact. I mean, I've got a note here that says Vinnie Jones's woke hypocrisy, where <laughs> he spends the entire film up until this point, you know, using kind of like gendered insults oh, yeah. to Calling up, the team. Yeah. Yeah, ladies calling them and ladies and stuff. You know, like, they'll be, like, playing on the field, and then Vinnie Jones will be standing on the sidelines going, oh, you're tripping over your vaginas, or something like that. <laughs> and, you know... Your typical, and then later typical on, soccer hooligan banter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Later on in the film, when Viola sort of unwigs, the, the coach from her original school comes up and is like, she can't play because she's a girl, and Vinnie Jones, like, rips up the rule book and is like... At Illyria Academy, we don't discriminate based on gender. It's like bullshit. You don't. You've done nothing but for the entire like runtime of this film, Vinnie Jones. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> it's that problematic thing where people are like, yes, anybody can be super masculine, including women. Like, you see, it's like ninety percent of people who are like into Viking stuff. They, it's not that they respect women. They just like respect that women can also be men. Yeah, and like it's never not treated as a joke that Viola as Sebastian might be a dude that has romantic feelings for another man. Right. 
it's weird how technically straight this all winds up being, despite, you know... Oh, there's the scene between Viola and Olivia, and I just wrote in my notes, kiss her, you fool. But they don't, they're cowards. Yeah. I mean, it does play like a lot like that in the original play, to be fair. Yeah. Which, which you know... I just expect better from, you know, 400 years later. <laughs> it's surprising how straight it ends up being also applies to Twelfth Night, in fairness. But this loses something metatextually by the fact that we're not watching a teenage boy playing a girl playing a boy. Later playing a girl. Yeah, there's a lot of recursive cross-dressing in Shakespeare, I guess. <laughs> it doesn't really carry over. I mean, I much preferred the queer version of this I was writing in my head as I watched it. I would love for, for someone to actually make that movie one day, if only to get an actual non-dangerous depiction of chest binding. Um, yes. Because they use, like, um, a cloth. You know, they basically just tie her up like a... It's weird how they build this bracket... Both films in this episode involve girls being wound up with cloth yep. in, in different ways. Very different contexts. For spurious reasons. <laughs> yeah. And so she's using like a, a cloth like like bandage binder. And one of the running jokes is she can't use the shower. And it's like, you're going to get a yeast infection. Oh my God. <laughs> Do you know what would have made more sense? I mean, I, I would have hated it. But if her friend Paul, the stylist, if he'd been a trans man, and was like, okay, I will be your guru for how to have a body like this and to be, you know, and, you know, could give her, like, a proper binder and stuff. At the same time, I would feel bad for any trans person having to enable this <laughs> this gendered bullshit. <laughs> I think there is definitely a actually explicitly trans version of Twelfth Night that could be done. I'm not sure like, how that would all be navigated properly what, without, and how would you have to change the plot to make it happen? I also think that the fact that we don't have that sort of stuff going on here, I think shows us just how far the conversations about trans issues have come in the 14 years since this film came out. If Viola had actually just been a trans man, then uh, Pooh Boy the teacher would have been super shitty in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Yeah. Also the fact they mentioned at one point Olivia was dating a college guy and that doesn't get any kind of like, you know, or there's, right, the kissing booth. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. Is that a thing? Uh, not as much, but yeah, it definitely has been a tr thing at like charity events and fairs and whatnot. It's awful. That was hor That was horrible to watch. I hated it every second of it. Oh yeah, we did too. Yeah. That was probably my biggest moment of culture clash, I think, watching <laughs> this movie. M my experience going to a British state school is very different from going to any American school, but especially an, an American boarding school. And mm. so like a lot of the sort of politics i guess of school that i've seen that i've you know that i only know from like american media is mm -hmm. like one of the weirdest things is like sports kids being you know revered and you know mm. both like institutionally and socially i guess because like my school had sport teams but the general consensus was you're voluntarily staying behind for extra school you could just go to the park and play football and then go home, you know, and do whatever you want. You're an absolute mm. mug. Yeah. You know, I was a kid who, like, I never did homework as a kid. I was, like, morally opposed to it. I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah. This, I'm with this you. is my time. So, the, for me, the idea of boarding school has always been, like, horrifying. Because it, it's mm -hmm. even, it's still weird now to meet people and it's, who, who, like, talk about their time at school. And it's like, wow, so you're saying school wasn't the foundation for a lifelong of trauma. Interesting. Um, I went through all of my schooling with undiagnosed autism and ADHD and acalculia. So school wasn't very fun for me in a lot of ways. Whenever sort of people reminisce about 
is like they're like oh I wish it was back at school it's like I would rather be in the sun <laughs> <laughs> that's fair getting back on the topic I want to get into Sebastian and Viola's parents and how awful they are they're very Just bad the worst. like not awful as people necessarily but definitely awful as parents they are terrible at it so the parents are divorced and so Viola basically tells dad she's staying with mom tells mom she's staying with dad so that she can go to his boarding school that she's at uh, and neither of them knew or checked up on that. When they're at the final soccer game, like they're sitting together because the principal called them like, you need to be here. And so they have to sit through both of their children publicly exposing themselves. But by the end of the film, they are going to get back together now. And just in my notes, I had to write, publicly exposing ourselves will make mom and dad love each other again. <laughs> we don't we don't get to see much of their dad, but the, the mom is introduced in the film hectoring viola with gendered bullshit by oh, yeah. you know why don't you wear these pretty dresses instead of playing the soccer <laughs> and then contemplating dating a teenager yeah yeah what the fuck <laughs> like i know i know it's played as a joke but like for a second she seriously considers it and i'm like which is you know not a bad reconstruction of the noise that i made when i watched it she thinks of herself as a fun mom <laughs> oh no she does yep. i think that really established like what i should expect from the film going forward it's like oh everyone is just dialed up to 11 everyone is a caricature okay i can handle this everyone is the worst possible version of his character <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> again like teen films from the mid 2000s and mm. listeners be prepared for lots more of this because it's like half of our bracket oh god it really is like the only other thing like this i've seen is like i saw the first five minutes of american pie 2 Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. I got some when it came out. I was in school, and a load of my friends were like, "We'll go to the cinema," and we were supposed to see something else, but the screening was full, so they're like, "We'll see American Pie 2 And I like, I watched the first five minutes, and I was like, "I'll see you after." And I just sat in the lobby of the cinema and read a book, <laughs> you know. And I'm not being like hashtag not like other girls or anything, but. I watched five minutes of that movie, and that was more than enough. Thank you. Seen approximately as much of the American Pie oeuvre, and. Uh... I found it very, very difficult to empathize with this version of Viola because, like, the version of Viola in the play, she's, like, literally shipwrecked on a beach. Her only living family member is presumed dead, and she has to try and sort of build a life, and that's why she, you know, presents herself as a boy to Duke Orsino's court and stuff, and it's like, whereas this, Viola is from such a privileged background, like... The house that she lives in with her mother is enormous. They talk about, like, college scouts. She wants to mm -hmm. play because... She wants to play soccer because she wants to be seen by college scouts. I get that having a scholarship would probably help and it'd be, like, a track into professional sports. But at the same time, you're definitely going to college. No way your parents don't have the cash to send you to college. Yeah, yeah. dad plays squash. Yeah. He wears a sweater around his neck. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you that I didn't have much empathy for these characters. However, this is the kind of movie that I watch in the same way that I read, like, Am I the Asshole posts? Or like when someone comes to the group chat, like, guys, I have a story for you. Like, it's the watching of how much worse can this get that makes me laugh as opposed to, like, how much do I care about these people? I think I have a little bit more empathy for Viola because of how fucking awful her boyfriend is to her at the beginning of the film. He is pretty awful. Well, the, I think, the, you know, it, it'd be a lot easier to bring this in line with the play 
if Violet was like from a working class or even from a middle class background. Oh, they don't make teen comedies about those people. Um, <laughs> those people. <laughs> exactly. Yes, I said it that way for a reason. Teenage comedies about the plebeians? I've never heard such a thing. We do have one last thing, which is uh, sorting everybody into the most jock, most prep, most nerd, and most goth. Who's got notes for what? Eunice is most goth. I'll, I'll die on that. <laughs> She's like, Are we sure it's not Wraith? Eunice is going to grow up to be an effective version of Wraith. She is going to lead a cult <laughs> effectively. That's true. Eunice is Natalie Dormer from Elementary. Jock, it's got to be Duke. I would have said Viola for Jock because, you know, it's emphasized how quote-unquote unladylike she is. She is so committed to sport that she does, like, a zany scheme. <laughs> That's very true. I'd argue that zany schemes are more nerdy than just being in sports. Yeah, but she's definitely pulling, like, cross-class skills there. She could, Yeah, she could be a jerd, which is also what you call a nerd made of denim. Oh, like best genus from My Hero Academia. I honestly think for most prep, we have to go with Dudley. Oh, yeah, for sure. Holmes's revenge against Dudley when he gets expelled is he puts, like, a chemical substance in his tea that... To turn him albino? (laughs) Yeah, so I've decided that he grows up to be Monsieur Zenith, the albino, who was the antagonist of Sherlock Holmes' knockoff Sexton Blake. So... (laughs) That tracks. That's my entry into, like, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Let's see, trying to think nerd. We don't have lots of good examples. I mean, Sherlock Holmes is the biggest nerd that's ever lived. I would say Holmes as most nerd, unless we have another, like, suggestion out there. There's not really a good example in She's the Man. We're just not dealing with that side of things. Yeah. Yeah, because, like, I think, I think a lot of people would, would peg Eunice for nerd because yeah. of, like, semiotically. She, like, they're, yeah. like, trading off the nerd archetype. But she's she's too freaky. And, yeah. you know, there, there's a Simpsons quote I really like where Milhouse gets called a nerd and he says, I'm not a nerd, nerds are smart. And I'm, not saying, I'm not saying Eunice isn't smart, but I think she she doesn't sort of exhibit any of the stereotypical nerd behaviours, which I think, mm-hmm. you know, if, if She's the Man is the kind of movie where if they wanted us to think that, they would put it in because, you know, this is a movie entirely bereft of any subtext. So our final is Duke is jock, Dudley is prep, Holmes is nerd and Eunice is goth. I think yeah. Duke or Olivia could go there. Um, like kind of an Viola. Either. I kind of write that differently in my notes. You know, a team there. Yeah, like at the, the movie. Exactly. They um, they're drift compatible. <laughs> in the spirit of intergender cooperation in sports, maybe they could both. I don't know. All right. So we finish our alignment chart. What do we want to move forward? I'm not even sure at this point. <laughs> I like I instinctively I I would you know cast my vote for young Sherlock Holmes simply because I was able to sit and watch it all the way through watching Cheese the Man I like glanced at the DVD player because I was thinking it can't be much longer now and I looked it was like thirty four minutes and it had already it had already felt like five years and I wanted to die I don't know I mean there's probably more you could talk about with She's the Man further down the bracket than you could Sherlock Holmes but at the same time. I, I, I had such a bad time watching She's the Man that I'm loath to even say that in its defense. I think She's the Man is a better film if you like reduce it to like just numbers of like what has more of a plot, better filming or whatever. But also I agree that like She's the Man is harder to watch. I listened to more of it than I saw because I was hiding behind my face. See, I don't have the problem that either of you two did, but I've also steeped myself more in this genre than you have. So I'm just... <clears throat> 
familiar with all of the tropes, all of the awkwardness, all of the really questionable humor at this point. <laughs> You've rendered yourself immune to the poison by <laughs> microdosing. Exactly. <laughs> Young Sherlock Holmes has some major structural problems, and it veers so wildly away from its source material. Mm. And, the like, ma- She's the Man does too, but it, it was under no obligation to stay there because it didn't label itself Twelfth Night or anything like that. It just said inspired by. This is a young Sherlock Holmes, and they had to give us two disclaimers that is effectively, this is fan fiction, don't add us. Because I'm very neutral slash good and bad on both sides thing, I might give it to She's a Man for not fridging somebody. Like I'm, That is kind of like a gross trope. Yeah. No one dies and She's the Man. The, the thing about, you know, Elizabeth dying, I mean, that was done by Chris Columbus because he said, oh, well, there must, you know, he basically wanted to give Sherlock Holmes a Freudian excuse for why mm-hmm. yep. he never pursued love and why he was so analytical, which is basically the same kind of argument that the makers of Man of Steel had. It's like, well, why does Superman not kill? Why would he know it's bad? Are you saying that, like, nobody can know that it's bad to kill unless they've done it? And in the same way, it's like, you can experience heartbreak without the person you're in love with dying i'll kind of begrudgingly allow she's the man to shuffle ahead (laughs) neither of these are great films they both have their pros and cons i think she's the man is better made i begrudgingly give my blessing to she's the man (laughs) (laughs) i mean there are three of us you can still vote for young sherlock holmes even though knowing that like it won't truly matter if either you or Alex had been on the fence about whether to do Young Sherlock Holmes, I would have voted for it just so that you could have got Mike Noel on to talk about the second time. We or... still have him on to talk about this one anyway. Yeah, get him on to talk about She's the Man. That's what I want to hear. I want to hear... <laughs> hear Mike Noel talk about She's the Man. I definitely think that Mike also has more experience with this genre than Jackson does, so that might be better like and more fair. I, I just realized by sort of framing my choice for She's the Man in the hope that it will make Mike have to talk about it. I've basically done, like, the conceit of the movie Ring, where <laughs> anyone, anyone who watches the cursed videotape has to get someone else to watch it or they'll die. So... <laughs> well, you heard it here, folks. You have to make everybody you know watch She's the Man within seven days, or um, or you lose your soccer scholarship. Is what you feel about Amanda Bynes crawling out of a well with a football. <laughs> But speaking of seven days from now, what's coming up next week? So next week, we have Finding Forrester and Wild Child. I've never heard of either of those. Um, You may have heard of Finding Forrester, or at least part of it, because it spawned the You're the Man Now Dog meme. You're the Man Now Dog! And that's all. (laughs) Yes. It's soul claim. (laughs) Pretty much. It has Sean Connery in it, and it's not popular at all. (laughs) But until then, Maya, where can... People find more of you. Uh, I, I actively make it difficult for people to find more <laughs> of me because uh, I'm like an antisocial goblin. But uh, I do do my own podcasts. I do uh, two podcasts. One's called The Wreckers, which I do with my friend Christy, where we recommend bits of media to each other and then sort of come back and discuss what we find. And it leads to some like genuinely wild stuff where like we'll be discussing, you know, a, a critically acclaimed New York Times bestselling fantasy novel series and like a Canadian cartoon from the 80s about raccoons that no one's heard of <laughs> in the same episode. Um, we are actually we're actually breaking up the stuff that we talk about for like going forward because it the, because of the dissonance. 
Uh, and I also do a show with my friends um, Erica and Umar called the Knackered Robots Podcast, which is ostensibly about Transformers toys, but is also generally like plastic robots in mm. general. And that that is probably the most sort of gremlin-y thing <laughs> that I make. So, like, the episode titles are usually like a sex pun based on a like a particular Transformer. <laughs> so, if you want your money back, I understand, but I also want to know who you pay. <laughs> Um, I also do a show occasionally called Sherlock October, which I talk about Sherlock Holmes for the month of October, and I didn't do it this year because I had a squishy brain, uh, and I'm trying to edit stuff like that, so that's going to be out sometime in the year. And one of those is me and Mike playing a Sherlock Holmes game book, like choose your own adventure type thing. I've I've heard stories of that recording session. (laughs) Thank you very much for appearing. Make sure to follow us on your podcasting app of choice, Twitter and Facebook. Until then, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We're ready to meet that guy.